So in this series, we've seen Jesus heal physical things and spiritual things alike. And sometimes we've seen those physical things are caused by spiritual things. But sometimes they have nothing to do with each other at all. And then we've seen him do these healings in all sorts of ways, sometimes with a touch, but sometimes with a word, and sometimes he's not even there in the same place. Then there's the recipient to think about. Some of them ask for themselves. Some ask for a friend. Some don't even ask at all. Then there's the reaction. Some behave surprisingly well, even though they're not the right sort. And some behave surprisingly badly, even though they are. And there really is only one pattern in this whole series that I have been able to detect so far, and that is Jesus. As we like to say, every heel is a reveal of who he really is. It is even more clear when you think how many times in this little series, the Old Testament lesson or the psalm appointed for the day prophesies the very thing that Jesus does. The Old Testament is woven with all of these promises that one day a holy one would come to deliver Israel in all of these ways, to, to open the eyes of the blind and to unstop the mouths of the mute and to enable the lame to leap with joy. And, uh, you know, whenever we plan a series like this, we sit down with a piece of paper and we, we try to figure out how to put the readings together. And sometimes it's really hard. And, you know, we leave a blank and it says TBC. And we try and think, okay, well, surely it will come to us. This was the opposite. This one we had, you know, 50 options for every healing. The, the Old Testament is bulging with prophecies about the things that only Christ would do. Uh, look at that lesson today. We'll just listen to it, actually. We'll, we'll zoom in on Matthew in a moment. But Isaiah 35. Aren't you proud of me? You hear I said it. Isaiah. Uh, verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. That was last week. The ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame shall leap like a deer. And the tongue of the mute sing for joy. There it is. Look for someone who will do this and this and this and this. And he does. So with all of the evidence that we have, going on in the passage today. I think the, the passage that Matthew writes is not so much about what Jesus does, but rather about how the witnesses react. There are divergent reactions to what Jesus does in the passage today. Let's have a look at it. Matthew 9, verse 32. As they were going away, meaning that this miracle or healing follows straight on from the one we heard last week, Behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. So presumably, like the paralyzed man that we looked at a few weeks ago, it was his friends that got him there. And uh, I just want to pause a moment and say, praise God for friends like that. Aren't those the friends you want? I praise God for my friends who've not always known what to do for me, but have known where to take me, who to point me to who to talk to me about. Friends like that. Maybe you could be a friend like that. Maybe there's someone in your life that you've tried to fix a lot, and you've never quite got it right, and you've tried every trick, and you're about to give up. Well, you can always bring that person to Jesus. You can always do that. You can always pray that that person would have Jesus revealed to them, just like we find right here. Uh, isn't it also kind of interesting that this man has to be brought? That's a funny thing. There's uh, a condition that is clearly one of speech. 
the original language, uh, kothos in Greek, leaves open the possibility that not only is he mute, but he's also got some problem with his ears. But there's absolutely nothing in the text whatsoever that suggests he has something wrong with his legs or his back. There's nothing to suggest that he's incapable of moving. So why is he brought? Why is he brought there like the paralyzed man if his problem is with speech? I'm imagining he's too depressed to move, or alternatively too oppressed, or alternatively too possessed, whichever it is. could be all three. He's unable to get there on his own. He could physically do it, I suppose, but there's something within him that is making it impossible for him to get there. And I just think there's a, a sort of encouragement for us in that notion. Because what this shows us is that with these healings of Jesus, the initiative is not our own. It's not down to us to gear up whatever it is, goodness and works of our own, to get Jesus. Some of us just have to be wheeled in to the presence of Christ. Uh, this is especially true, isn't it, for a man like this whose condition is severe. This is one of the more severe kind of conditions we've seen in the series so far. We're meant to see that the spiritual suffering of this man has manifested in physical suffering, and the physical suffering with the spiritual suffering has manifested in mental suffering, and this is all bound up into one thing. The dude is spiraling. That's what we're supposed to see. Who likes it? The enemy. The enemy loves this kind of thing. The enemy likes to isolate. What the enemy likes to do is to disrupt our ability to communicate, to get us on our own, and then to become our own little personal counselor, the one who gets to whisper truths to us about how the world really is, the one that says there's no point in going for help, there's no one coming for you, you haven't got any friends, there's no hope for you, there's no savior for you, you don't belong, you better just sit here on your own with me. The enemy loves this stuff. He's been doing this since the fall. Attacking communication. Did God really say? That's the first thing Satan says in Scripture. is an attack on our ability to communicate. And then I think having isolated the dude, having filled his head with gibberish, he's also filled the man himself with something far more alarming, a presence from hell. Verse 33 says, when the demon had been cast out, which means it was in, and it also means that the removal was by no means quiet. Cast out, ekbalo in Greek, is a violent word. It's a shocking word. It literally describes, I'm very sorry to say it if you've not yet had your breakfast, but it literally means an explosion from the guts. That's what the word means. Strong's definitive theological concordance has some really weirdly specific details uh, about the, this sort of involuntary bodily function and even details the kind of places one might have to use if caught short. You, uh, you get the sense that all scholars at heart are just rude little schoolboys looking for some toilet humor. And I just knew if I, if I studied them long enough, I'd finally find something in there that I found enjoyable to read. It does remind me of the time when Zach Gray whoo, sent my son Ben and Josh out to forage for ramps on that very hill up there. 
and they cooked them for me. Delightful meal. It wasn't long before I realized that what I had in fact been fed was hyacinth. Apart from the surprisingly floral taste, the first sign that I'd been poisoned was my vision going purple. And then very many, many violent things came out. The point of such a forceful, colorful, shocking, disgusting word as this is that this was in no way an event that anyone could miss or misconstrue as the demon is dragged out, kicking and screaming. Jesus is peaceful. He's not kicking and screaming. Jesus has authority. He can do this with a word. The demon isn't deaf. But it doesn't want to come out. This is not something you could miss or misconstrue. In case you did also, verse 33, the mute man spoke and that's it. That's the healing because the healing's not the point. The point is the point, the question, who on earth has a power to do something like this? There's the question. Two options for us. Option one, either this is the moment we've all been waiting for. This is the prophetic fulfillment of all of the old covenant promises of God. Or, in the alternative, this is a ruse unlike one we have ever seen before. Straight from the pits of hell. Before we dig into the two divergent opinions about what exactly is going on, I'd like to narrow a few things down first. So uh, whenever you have a witness dispute like this, and for example, a, a, a trial in law, and you run the case to trial, both parties to the dispute are encouraged, before you start, to agree on as many facts as possible. And uh, to, to say, yeah, well, we all agree on, on these basic things. So, you know, your honor, you don't say you know, they don't like that. You just say your honor. Uh, a red car and a blue car collided on the Highland Park Bridge, headed south last Tuesday in the dark. And then the judge says, is this something on which both parties are in agreement? And you say, your honor, yes. Now you can fight over the detail, like who hit whom, who switched lanes, who was on their cell phone, who was drunk, who'd done this before, who was uninsured, all this kind of thing. Here's some agreed facts that everyone in the case agrees are true. The man had a demon in him. The manifestation was so great, the man was unable to speak or help himself. In fact, no one could help him at all. The Greek word suggests not only a problem of speech, but a problem of hearing, and the dude is spiraling. Jesus alone has the power to cast out the demon. When he did, it was a very obvious moment that no one could deny, and on top of that, the mute man spoke. So in other words, when Jesus had finished, the man was restored. Not one of these facts is in dispute by anybody. There's no one there on the scene who witnesses the work of Jesus Christ willing to postulate any other ideas at all other than these central facts. No one says, well, maybe he was ill. Maybe demons aren't real. Okay, okay. Demons are real, but they weren't in. 
Uh, okay, okay, okay. They, they could be in, but this isn't that kind of a situation. It's a setup. It's a scam. No one says that. No one says, you know, the guy acts out a problem, pretending to be deaf, just so that he can pretend to be possessed, just so Jesus can pretend to cast out the demon so that other people can be duped into following him. And Jesus set this up, you know, five, ten years ago and, and paid him off with all the money that he had. No one postulates those ideas, you, of course, are welcome to. You're welcome to come up with any ideas you like, by all means. Just be aware, if you do, it will entirely be a frolic of your own, wholly unsupported by any of the witnesses on the ground. The only dispute in this passage is how he did it. Not did he do it. Opinion number one, the experts in verse 34, the Pharisees said he casts out demons by the prince of demons. They say, look, Satan did this. Satan put the demon in there just so that Satan could take it out again and mislead everybody into thinking that Jesus was someone good. It is a real exorcism, but it's cynically designed by Satan himself. The alternative view comes in verse 33, the crowds, just the the poloi, the, the hoi poloi, the, the many, the throng, the mobilus vulgus, the mob, yins, the crowds, marveled. It means to wonder and to admire. It's a positive word. Saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. And I just think with this little tiny word Israel, they're saying, you know, this is a big deal. This is more than something just for the man or something just for us to witness. But in fact, this is a sight for the whole nation to behold. Many times Israel was promised that they would see events exactly like this one. These were signs that Israel was told to expect of, of promises being fulfilled and of the kingdom having come. The scholar G.E. Ladd, in his book, The Presence of the Future, which is a truly awesome title, said he was different and people noticed. The scribes taught and nothing happened. Jesus spoke and demons fled. Storms were settled. Dead were raised. Sins forgiven. His authority in deeds and words was nothing less than the presence of the kingdom of God. What a wonderful quote. So the crowds see the significance of the moment. They get it. Especially the crowds, I think, place this within a catalog of events. They've seen Jesus do all sorts of things. You cannot possibly have faked them all. How do you fake the calming of a storm? How do you fake the raising of the dead? They've seen Jesus do things that only God can do. And they know, with this little word Israel, that God had promised them one day he would do things exactly like it. So if they are correct, if Jesus really is who they say he is, it means something good. And not just for Israel, but for us. Because Isaiah and the prophets, whenever they prophesied and promised these events that would take place in Israel, they looked through the events that Jesus would do in space and time right there in his earthly ministry to the culmination of that earthly ministry 
where on the cross he would take on all of these infirmities and all of these wounds, and by them we would be healed. And Isaiah looked even through the cross to a time when he would return. Almost, we call it telescoping, as though you're looking through a tube with multiple lenses as Isaiah looks to this sort of immediate, intermediate, and ultimate hope. And the hope of Israel is the hope not of the nation, but of the nations, plural. A hope that one day Christ would return and draw all things to himself. Call us all to him. Restore us all. Even this world around us, the material things, would be restored. A final showdown when evil finally would be cast away. When we would be given resurrection bodies, when we would be made new, when tears would be wiped away, when the sea would be no more, when sin would be cast away. That is the promise of God. And this little restoration, therefore, means something for us. Every heal is a reveal of something greater yet to come. There's no situation whatsoever beyond Christ's capacity to restore. There's nothing beyond him. I think as we reflect this week on, on the loss faced by our brother Ben and uh, his, his family, if ever there were a weekend where we needed hope and these promises to be true, it would be one like this. These are the promises of God. These are the things that enable Christians to grieve together and rejoice at the same time. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you do a mighty, powerful thing. Beyond the schoolboy humor of the scholars, I thank you that this deliverance was unmistakable. I thank you, Lord Jesus, though evil manifests, you manifest in a far greater way as a healer, as the restorer of Israel, and that you would call us children of Abraham uh, by your grace and your work on the cross that we would be included in these ancient promises. And we look for your return, Lord Jesus. Amen.